There's a little more than a week left in the 2018 World Cup and the deeper we get into this tournament the more intent it seems on disproving everything we thought we knew about soccer. Germany, Argentina, Portugal, Spain, they're all already out. England just won a match on penalties and the quote-unquote worst Russian team of all time are three wins away from a final. My name is Mitchell Tierney, you are listening to the Footy Talks podcast, and on today's episode we will take a look at the final eight teams standing in Russia, we'll talk some Toronto FC, and uh, we'll talk a suddenly wide open World Cup tournament. Um, I think it's only fitting that with a bunch of new teams in the last eight of the World Cup, uh, that calls for a brand new co-host on this show as well, uh, from All In Sports Talk and a regular soccer expert during this World Cup on CP24 and CTV throughout the tournament. It's Steve Gennaro. Steve, this has been pretty long overdue. Thanks for joining the show. Oh, happy happy to be a guest and be involved with any of the great projects that you're doing, Mitchell. Uh, I've known you for a couple of years now and uh, always do great work, so thanks for including me. Wow, I'm uh, happy about those big ups before we start. Uh, I'll throw you a bunch of softballs after that. Uh, but uh, uh, before we jump into the World Cup quarterfinal matchups, we're going to take some time looking at all of those. Um, uh, I think it's worth taking a little look back at the round of 16 because these ended up being some pretty fantastic games. I think there was maybe a little worry that after the, how good the group stage had been and how much hype that had built up, the, the round of 16 was going to uh, be a little disappointing. But starting with France 4, Argentina 3, and uh, continuing on from there, we we had something special on our hands. But uh, Steve, I want to talk about the last game because that's obviously the freshest in our mind uh, of the round England winning on penalty kicks for the first time in a World Cup uh, they hadn't won on penalty kicks the only time they'd ever won on penalty kicks uh, was at Euro 96 in a major tournament when they beat Spain which they immediately followed up by losing to Germany on penalty kicks. So um, this is a team evidently that uh, haven't been very good at, at spot kicks in general. Um, but finally, 2018, uh, they win on penalty kicks in a very tense round of 16 game against Colombia. Yeah, I, I think England has been uh, quietly impressive and uh, at the same time loudly unimpressive, if, if such a thing is actually possible. <laughs> you know, if you follow any English soccer fe- uh, football fans or soccer fans on Twitter or any form of social media, you hear all kinds of information coming out of there. But if we just go back and look at maybe the, the transition of this England uh, team over the last couple of years, uh, you know, the implementation of, uh, of Southgate as, as the, head, the head coach, the manager of the club uh, in the country, and then what that's done to the program, including the naming of uh, Kane as the captain coming into the, the, the tournament, there was a lot of, um, let's say, uh, unsettled uh, English soccer fans as to how good their supporters, how good this team could actually be in the tournament. And yes, they find themselves now in the final eight with what they would have to believe is the easiest possible path to the final, Sweden followed by the winner of Russia, Croatia. And we can get to that in a moment, whether or not that's actually easy or, mm-hmm. or, or easy at all. So they got, I'm sure they feel very happy about that. But the way in which they've got there, I mean, it's impressive and it's not impressive. Like, it's impressive because England has found ways to win matches along the way. A lot of them were, let's, let's be quite frank or quite honest, they, they haven't been spectacular in. Uh, and, you know, they, they haven't scored a lot of goals from open play. Uh, I believe only uh, two, maybe three. And, the, and they all came against Panama, if memory serves me correct. Everything else is uh, penalty kicks and, and set pieces. Uh, and... 
but Kane has been great. I mean, he's done everything you could ask from him and, and probably more. I think he's probably been the best player in the tournament if we're going to be honest from the outside. And if you have the, the hottest goal scorer in the tournament and your team is finding ways to win, you have to feel good about yourself with only you know uh, two matches standing between you and the final. One thing I think this this game against Columbia potentially uh, told us, which you kind of touched on a little bit, but is just the mental toughness of this England side that potentially they haven't had in past years. Uh, you know, Columbia were a team very intent on on uh, you know kind of playing the the dark arts, if you will. Um, you know, a lot of fouls, a, a lot of rushing the referee, that sort of thing. Um, England kept their head reasonably well during that match. You know, there was a there was a certain John Stones uh, half stomp on. Uh, on Redmond Focal that maybe uh, could have been called, but uh, for the most part, they kept their heads. Uh, you know, a late equalizer from Yeri Mina, another moment where they, they could have really lost things. And then once you're going into penalties as an English team at this point, uh, that has to be in the back of your head the entire time that we've lost this so many times. Everyone expects us to lose this, so it added an extra bit of pressure. But um, in terms of a penalty shootout overall, that was one of the more impressive ones we've seen at this tournament. Um, you know, especially in terms of the goals that were scored, Harry Kane and an unbelievable penalty taker. We found out this tournament, and we also knew in the past. Yeah, and I think uh, speaking to that again, just you know, when Henderson steps up and misses that penalty, and now all of a sudden the advantage moves to Colombia. Pretty much every English fan that that I follow on Twitter had given up. <laughs> they assumed they assumed at that point there that that was the the end of their tournament. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, for the, again for that to to to, to pull out to pull out the, the four three win. You know, a little bit of that uh, comes from luck, and also a great save as well. Um, you know, by the English keeper as well. So that's helpful and, and very different, like you said, than the uh, Denmark Croatia penalties where. You know the goalies were saving everything, which was the, the precisely the opposite. No, I think I think England should be happy with where they are. I mean, they've they've earned their place. You know, they're not there by accident. They're not there by fluke. I mean, they've they've earned their place. They did enough in the in the group stage, and they've done it. They've they've beaten the opponents that have been placed in front of them so far in the knockout stage. I mean, Colombia without James Rodriguez is is nice. I mean, it's it's a nicer matchup certainly, but you still have to go out and win the game, and you know. You mentioned the dark arts. You mentioned sort of the negative soccer, you know, that that was being played by Colombia. And at the same time, you know, England, when they got their opportunity, when they were awarded that pen, they put it. They, you know, they buried it. They go up one nil, and then you know they're they're looking to hold. Now I thought Colombia scoring the the equalizer was exciting as a neutral, but you know, again, you talk about the toughness they pushed through. Sweden will be very difficult for them. though. It'll be it'll be a different type of match. You know, if we go back and look at Sweden's path to the World Cup, I mean, they have. They've knocked out everybody else that we that, uh, along the way. A lot, a lot, a lot of good teams now have been sent mm-hmm. home by by Sweden. You know, Switzerland is a top ten team in the world. I believe they're sixth in the world coming to the tournament. The number one team in the world, uh, Germany's knocked out by them. Netherlands and uh, Italy both have their World Cup hopes dashed to even make it to the tournament because of Sweden. And you know, we could talk about Ibra or no Ibra in a second, but this this Sweden team is. Is a good team. They know who they are. They're they're actually the better version of Iceland. You know, everyone wants to talk about Iceland as like you know the the sum of its parts and this team that, that just sort of comes together and makes you know, Sweden is is actually that team, but just a much more talented version of that and a better version. And they don't concede a lot of goals off of corner kicks and they don't give away a lot of pens. And it's going to be interesting to see how England are able to create in open play and if they can create enough to actually uh, you know put, put them through into the, the you know the round four. 
Yeah, it certainly makes it interesting, of course, because uh, Euro 2016, of course, you mentioned how much Sweden is a better version of Iceland. Well, Iceland was obviously the team that surprisingly ended England's tournament uh, at the Euros. So stylistically, as you said, this is a very interesting game for England, uh, an, another kind of challenge where um, the opposition will be sitting back. They'll be looking for opportunities to break England down. And um, this is really where we're going to see how much I think this English team, and there's been a lot of talk about how, how much this has been a step stone moment for this English team but this is a game where they really can prove that um, things have improved immensely um, in the program in terms of uh, what they're able to do in attack and and breaking down a team that um, certainly doesn't uh, doesn't want to be broken down and uh, has been fantastic defensively so far yeah and all, and all jokes aside like you know with like a, with a somewhat joking and serious tone it may not matter what happens in this game because you might get Russia in the next round. Mm. And, you know, I mean, let, let's face it, Putin is, just continues to kidnap families so to, to, to ensure that he gets the decision that he wants. Uh, let's hope he's not listening to this podcast, right? So uh, it, like, there, there is also the very, you know, real possibility that uh, <laughs> that what happens at this next round uh, is, is, is futile anyhow. <laughs> Um, you've, you've talked a lot about how things, how much things have opened up for, for England at this, uh, at this competition and a number of sides on this, uh, on this side of the bracket. Um, I think the quarterfinals was where a lot of fans kind of thought they would see England getting, but, um, you know, at that point it seemed all roads would lead to Germany. And, uh, that, I think that was kind of, you know, that was kind of the expectation here was that England would get to a quarterfinal and then potentially lose to Germany and that would be you know a successful tournament that they could build on well now that the real gatekeepers in Germany are out of the way and all of a sudden it's Sweden that they're playing um you know is does that kind of change expectations a, a, a little bit now about this English team you know hard for me to say because I'm not an English football supporter so I can't you know I can't you know, there are, there are two sets of expectations, and they're they're both very different, right? So there's the expectations of the English FA, who I'm sure probably feels that they've already done more than could have uh, been expected coming into the tournament. I'm sure in, internally, though, they wouldn't say it publicly. They're very happy with what they've seen and, and where they're at. And then there's the fan the, the fans of the supporters, you know, and what their expectations are. And for every country, not just for English uh, soccer fans, the expectation is, you know, win win win, win everything, and, and why not? Mm-hmm. But English soccer fans in particular, they're you know they're very passionate about their their country and their country's football and you know they want to see the their their club win the whole thing or their country win the whole thing and if they're in a position where all that stands between them and the final is Sweden, Russia and Croatia, I think now the expectations probably change, yeah. And I think that they'll be disappointed if they don't make the final. Um, but having said that, you know, it's hard to argue against Croatia right now, who I think has probably been the best team in the tournament. If we look at just how each team has played or each country I, I'm gonna call them Teams instead of countries. I hope, that the, I hope people aren't getting angry as they're listening <laughs> to the podcast with my vocabulary. But if we look at how each country has played so far in the tournament, I think Croatia has played consistently the best uh, soccer uh, from start from start to finish. So to me, I know if you take away the numbers beside, I and mean, Croatia's twentieth in the world coming to the tournament. If you take that number away and you just you know look at the the quality of football played in this particular tournament, there has been nobody, in my opinion, better than Croatia. So I, I actually think this is the more difficult bracket because Sweden has been very sound uh, and, and compact, and if 
proved to be a very difficult uh, opposition for a lot of high-quality teams. We just listed them. Croatia, I think, has been the best team in the tournament. We just talked about that. Russia, I mean, uh, we, you know, and, and, and the, the Putin influence, which I actually think is actually very real, like, all joking aside, is, is on this bracket. Whereas on the flip side, you got Brazil, who has been, in my opinion, not impressive at all. Belgium, in my opinion, who only wants to play six or seven minutes a game, although they're deadly in those six or seven minutes. You have France, who I think has been unimpressive, and Uruguay, who, you know, silently has found their way and, and their footing in the tournament, although I thought in the group stage that they were lucky to win every single game that they won. So, I mean, I would, if, if I was, as a neutral, I mean, you look at the names and you say, oh, the top half of the bracket, Uruguay, France, Brazil, Belgium, you don't want to be there. But I kind of, I think I'd rather take my chances with those teams because I think all four of them have been underperforming and underpunching. Hmm, that's an interesting point. Um, we, we've kind of talked about England, Sweden a little bit here. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you to to do a horrible thing, considering uh, how how tough it has been to predict this this World Cup tournament. And let me ask you uh, for your prediction of of all four of these games, and I'll offer mine as well, just to uh, just to even it out here. But um, uh, you know, England, Sweden, who do you have uh, winning that game? Yeah, I think I think England's the better team, so I, I think they 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 find a way to, to 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 make it through. But again, if the game ended one one and went to pens, I wouldn't be surprised. If the game ended two nothing Sweden, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I'm cheering for Sweden uh, <laughs> only because I like seeing chaos in global soccer. So I'm 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 certainly cheering for for Sweden. But I mean, if I if I was putting money on it, I would put money on England. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. I think uh, you know this English team has has been solid enough uh, so far this tournament, and uh, you know Sweden's very unpredictable. They they uh, obviously you know uh, lost that tough game to Germany, but then go out and stun Mexico in the next game. So um, it's it's kind of hard to to get a full read on them. But um, you know they've they've obviously had a great tournament so far, and uh, they're they're one of those teams that's almost on on borrowed time right now. They they kind of have nothing to lose. Uh, so um, this could be um, a good game for them. Um, Russia, Croatia, another interesting game. The the first quarterfinal appearance for uh, Croatia since France 1998, and the Russians haven't gotten there since the breakup of the Soviet Union. So uh, as you said, um, there might be uh, some other things at play here. But um, on on paper, I think this this looks like a pretty uh, one sided game. But again. Uh, Russia's been the toughest team in this tournament to predict so far. Yeah, I'm actually going to predict Russia to 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 win that game. I, think. I mean, I I think Croatia is the best team in the tournament. I would love to see them, uh, you know, find their way to the finals. I put out on Twitter a while back, you know, just how sad it is when we think about the fact that you know politics and you know divided a country like Yugoslavia internally broke up uh, you know a country like Yugoslavia which when i was a kid growing up was one of the best footballing nations in the world and if you take a look at you know the players that exist in Croatia and in Serbia mm. and in Bosnia yeah. right you put and you put them all together on one team we've been denied an entire generation and maybe two generations of complete football dominance and so i would love to see one of those uh, countries find their way to the final at the same time, I think I'm going to implement the Putin rule, which is kind of like the LeBron James rule, and that is, you know, like if you want to vote, if you want to bet against LeBron James in a seven-game series, then the, you know, the, you're, you're, unless you're the Golden State Warriors, you're you're taking your chances with your money. And I think if you want to bet against, you know, Putin's ability to influence sport inside his country, I think you're, uh, you know, you're you're taking chances with your money. So. Uh, Croatia should win that by all accounts, but we also haven't seen Croatia get punched in the mouth yet in this tournament, right? Mike Tyson always says everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth, and uh, we haven't seen that happen. And Russia has been able to score 
goals quickly and in bunches. And what, what will that look like if Russia is able to score, let's say, two quick goals or two goals in a four or five minute span, even if it's 55 minutes into the game? Then what happens and how does Croatia react to that? And then what do they look like as they are forced to open up just a little bit more? But I mean, their midfield is so dominant. Uh, I, I would expect them to win. But I'm, if, I'm, if I'm betting, I'm betting on Russia. To be fair, a bit of a tough game for them against Denmark in the uh, round of 16 where Denmark were you know, kind of able to put a lot of pressure on them, obviously scored that early goal. So did Croatia responding quickly, but um, that one did go to penalties. So uh, as you said, they haven't really fully been punched in the mouth, but at least that was a difficult test for them that they had to overcome. True, true, very true, yeah. Um, let's move on to, as you said, maybe... <laughs> Maybe not the tougher side of the bracket, but certainly where all the heavyweights are. Um, Belgium against Brazil. Um, Belgium, they, they're coming off that incredible comeback. Um, the first time since 1966 that a team has fallen behind two goals or more uh, before winning in a knockout stage. They beat Japan. Um, you know, they're another team that hasn't really... Um, hasn't really faced the, t- uh, the toughest opposition. Obviously, they played England's B team in their final group game, and Panama and Tunisia were very much uh, just here for the ride at, uh, uh, during the group stage. So um, we haven't really seen uh, them at, at their full powers yet in terms of playing a tough opposition. Uh, they're going to have to figure that out quick. Uh, I know you said you haven't been impressed, all that impressed by Brazil at this tournament, but um, this certainly is an interesting uh, matchup uh, between two very heavily favored teams in terms of going far in this tournament. Yeah, I think the scoreline in each in each match is favored Brazil. I mean, they find themselves winning games two nil. When clearly, you know, if you watch the Brazil Mexico game, it wasn't a two nil game. I mean, that, that's fine. That's the, that's the end score. But uh, that's certainly not how the game itself played out. And we saw that also. I thought in the um, in, in the group stage where I think Brazil, you know, was very fortunate to come out with every single point that they came out with. Having said that, I mean, I would. I would be taking Brazil over Belgium in this game. You have the world number two team against the world number three team. I mean, Brazil is, you know, they were able to beat Mexico without Marcello, which I thought was, you know, uh, impactful and just demonstrates the type of depth that they have. I think Belgium certainly has all the depth that can match them and all the talent necessary to be the best team in the world. And, you know, they probably should be the team that goes on to win the entire World Cup, given how talented they are. But there's a factor here that that hasn't, drawn much attention in part because in the last match everything worked for Roberto Martinez like you know every substitution he made down to nothing to Japan ended up turning to be gold right because all mm-hmm. of a sudden every player he puts on and switches on ends up scoring or creating a goal <laughs> that, 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 that becomes a difference maker but Roberto Martinez was horrible at Wigan he was horrible at Everton and you know I do think that one of the reasons why we're seeing Belgium underperform is I, I think the way in which he's tactically setting up this team is also horrible he has Kevin De Bruyne sitting so deep on this team which I don't understand why as you saw him in the in the last match the game winner against uh, Japan you know you put the ball in his feet his ability to break and his ability to just create space and opportunity for other players is really unparalleled I mean there are very few players in the world that can do what Kevin De Bruyne does and I just think that he's being uh, restrained a little too much being asked to play too much of a of a holding or defensive role too too deep he has to collect the ball and I would like to see him let loose a little bit more and I think that if they decided to play a more offensive and open style which maybe Brazil will draw out of them just naturally because of how Brazil plays I think you can probably see the best from Belgium and the best from Belgium is, is, is probably pretty darn good i mean they're a pretty incredible team but um yeah I, I, i'm gonna go with Brazil. 
Fair enough. And uh, one of the big talking points, obviously, with Brazil at this tournament has been uh, their talisman, Neymar. Um, and a lot of it's been for all the wrong reasons. Uh, I know we obviously have seen a, a lot of embellishment from Neymar, a lot of uh, kind of the dark arts on his side as well. Obviously, he's been one of the most fouled players at this tournament, but uh, he's certainly made a meal of a lot of them. Uh, speaking of meals, there's actually a pretty hilarious uh, South African KFC commercial going uh, around right now where uh, kind of a, a name. Neymar Vane, a soccer player, he, he takes a dive um, and, and tries and like basically rolls out of the stadium so he can go to the restaurant and get some KFC, a pretty <laughs> hilarious commercial, um, kind of, uh, you know, showing how much, how ingrained this is, uh, this has become in, in the game of soccer. Um, what have you made of Neymar's tournament so far and kind of, uh, you know, everyone's kind of turning on him a little bit um, as he rolls himself. Yeah, first I want to say I think VAR has done an exceptional job of cleaning up the game from a lot of that garbage. Mm. I think in this tournament we've seen a lot of that nonsense cut out. We saw some of it early on, but as players started to realize that those calls would, especially in the box, would be you know would would, would go against them and not for them. We've seen a lot of that out of the game, and I, I greatly appreciate that. You know, I. I'm a little bit torn on Neymar. Uh, like I, I will say that the embellishment is brutal. Uh, you know, it's 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 difficult to watch. And I would love to see him get carded more often for that behavior. I think that that would actually clean the game up a lot too. Is if players like that get carded for that behavior when it's you know clear as day uh, atrocious. And I actually thought that in the um, in the Iran versus Portugal game uh, late in the match there was a moment where Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, elbowed uh, the Iranian player, and mm-hmm. they went they went to VAR, and then the referee came out and he gave Ronaldo a yellow. Now that, that probably should have been a red, and that might have even changed the game or the tournament had it been a red. But at the same time, I thought that that was a very impactful moment on the entire tournament because what you had for the first time, and really I can't remember ever, is a referee pulling a card on a you know superstar, a global superstar for mm-hmm. what is clearly. Um, uh, you know, a break within the rules. And I would love to see Neymar get a little bit more of that treatment where, uh, you know, like when, when he flops, when he dies, when he rolls around like he's been shot, like that he just gets carded and then we move on with the game because I really, it, it, it's, it's absolutely atrocious. At the same time though, Mitchell, and this is the thing that gets me just a little bit here that makes it hard for me to flip on him. He's amazing. <laughs> he's an absolutely amazing player. And the, the difference in skill level between him and basically everybody he's playing against is significant. So we've talked a lot in this tournament about Messi and about Ronaldo. And I was just just singing the praises of De Bruyne. But I mean, like, outside of Messi and Ronaldo, I mean, Neymar's in that, he's, he's, in, he's in that stratosphere. Like, that's where he is. Now, he hasn't played as long. He hasn't demonstrated over as long a period of time. I get all that. But that's the stratosphere in which he's playing in. That's the skill level that he has. His ability to break down one, two, three defenders is, is phenomenal. To find players to finish. I mean, he's just, he, he's a beautiful player. And, and this is, this is the thing that maybe not everybody recognizes or maybe they don't want to acknowledge because he flops so much and, and, and dives or whatever, he gets fouled on basically every single play. Every time he touches mm-hmm. the ball, he's getting swarmed by multiple players and he's getting hacked, absolutely hacked. So his embellishment, I think, is part and parcel because he's not getting a lot of the calls in the first place. And I just, again, a tighter refereeing, I think, on both sides probably gets rid of some of that. Some more calls on when he's getting hacked and some, some quick yellows when he's flopping around, I think, removes that. But, I, you know, he's, he's a phenomenal player. And I think that 
I, I just I don't like to see his his name get tarnished by the by by that, and I, I and I'd like to see him sort of clean that up a little bit. It reminds me a lot. I don't know uh, how old you are, if you're old enough to remember, <laughs> but it, it reminds me a lot of when Cristiano Ronaldo played at Manchester United. Mm. I mean, the type of the type of response to Ronaldo doing all types of step overs in the middle of play over and over and over again, and people just really basically, basically thought he was a wanker, right? And that, <laughs> and that he was like, and that so you weren't able to appreciate his talent or what he could become as a player or what he even was in that moment because you were. So turned off by his theatrics and, the, and what you know, what's sort of considered a lesser part of the game, and I feel like that's where we are right now with Neymar. Now, win the World Cup, and everyone will stop talking about that. It will go in a different direction, but I, but I, I feel like that's where we are with him right now. Yeah, you'll find no disagreement on any of those points there. Uh, a lot of valid points. Uh, I'd agree. I think you know he's a player who gets fouled a lot, and uh, maybe that it starts to come into his head that he has to try and get some more calls here. So um, you know it'll be interesting to see how he goes forward because, like you said, one of the most talented players in the world and um, had a pretty solid tournament so far. Um, Speaking of superstar players, as we move on to our final uh, matchup of the of the quarterfinals, uh, France against Uruguay. Um, you know the the round of sixteen was certainly a bit of a coming out party for Kylian Mbappe, a player who obviously has been well known, one of the most expensive. Uh, well, it's a, technically a loan at first, but transfers in in world soccer um, to Paris Saint Germain. But he scored two goals and, and basically created a third against Argentina. That Argentine defense had no answer for. For him uh, and of course he's the second youngest player to score at least two goals at a world cup uh, the youngest being a 17 year old Pele so not terrible company for for the French striker um, as I said he's kind of been a, a name that we've known for a long time within the soccer world but this was kind of his you know greater uh, coming out party where now I think he, he might be a bit of a household name on on the soccer you know in the soccer lexicon even in terms of casual fans now after that unbelievable performance yeah, he was great. I mean, Argentina, they, they just couldn't deal with his speed, really. And I think that was the biggest the part of that match is just the back line. Argentina just really slow. And, uh, you know, they were, they were really getting opened up a lot. I don't think uh, Uruguay will be as easy to carve open they're just a, they're no. just a better defensive squad across you know across the back line and i think for france this is this is the moment right where it's now you know and people say oh but they beat argentina in 4-3 yeah but that argentina team really wasn't very good and we know how much, how how far messi had carried that team and we just know how empty that team actually was uh, I, i'm surprised that Argentina was able to make a game of that you know that they didn't roll over and, and just kind of die early in that game as they went down uruguay they can score goals, and, and they haven't done it yet. That is, the, for me, the, the the thing with this team is they they weren't that impressive. I thought in the opening rounds they 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 haven't been that impressive even against even against Portugal, and they haven't even got going. That's so for me. The, what I would be scared of if I'm any team left in this tournament is you know if you have one elite goal scorer like we're talking about England, you got a guy like Harry Kane. He can carry you all the way through the World Cup. Uruguay got two of those guys. You know, they got Suarez and they got Cavani. Mm -hmm. And if either one of those guys get going, and I mean really get going, uh, that's it. I mean, Uruguay is going to go right to the end and they're going to win their third World Cup. And if they can get both those guys going, I mean, that means it's not even going to be close along the way. We saw Suarez do this his first year at Barcelona. You know, he took he helped Barcelona go all the way to the Champions League final and win the Champions League. It wasn't Messi that did it. I mean, it was Suarez who just by himself single-handedly took out Manchester City. I mean, is Suarez in the final, you know, that also scored the 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 decisive goals. I mean, he's he is again the type of guy who can just change a game on nothing, take a play that's nothing and change a game. And Cavani this year in the first half of the season at PSG was as dominant a player as we saw in Europe in the first three months of the season. So 
these guys have you know they they've been good good enough to, to continue to push but if, if they actually if either one of them actually gets hot over the next seven or eight days I mean Uruguay has every uh, opportunity to, to 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 go the distance. There is of course uh, injury concerns with Edison Cavani. Um, he was taken off against Portugal, having suffered a calf injury. So uh, his health is going to be paramount to this game for from a Uruguay standpoint. Uh, the the French they apparently haven't lost to a South American nation at the World Cup since 1978. So they'll have that stat on their side going to this game. But uh, this is another one that uh, kind of like uh, Sweden England I mentioned earlier um, is stylistically interesting. Uh, if we want to look back to the last Euros, because this Uruguay side. Um, has a lot in common with with that Portugal side uh, who beat France in the in the Euro finals. Um, kind of a side that likes to sit defensively deep, uh, very compact at the back, and aren't going to allow the French a lot of opportunity to run at them. As you said, um, I don't think we're going to see Mbappe have the same um, impact in terms of being able to to get in behind them because you know with with Diego Godin and uh, Jimenez, you know you're, you're not getting by that center back pairing in the same way. Um, so that makes this an interesting match obviously you've got the uh you know this is this is almost like a, that portuguese team but on steroids a little bit with the uh, two better attackers as you mentioned yeah and i, I wonder if france will uh sit Giroud and start griezmann up top you know mm-hmm. and we haven't we haven't seen that so much in the tournament we've seen griezmann playing a little bit deeper in behind letting Giroud be the the top man or the, or the point man and it's, it's it's worked at times for them but you know uh griezmann he knows uh he knows those those uruguayan uh center backs very well right obviously from um, they're you know Atletico, so I think that, and I think that he might be the maybe that's that's maybe the style type of stylistic change that might prove to be a benefit for France to give uh, to let Grisman sort of be the the go to guy at the top. And quickly, your prediction for this one? I'm going Uruguay. As people are saying a lot right now in the media, Uruguay. I've noticed that there's been a big pronunciation change in this World Cup, and it's been you know really focused on by by all the broadcasters. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that. <laughs> very nice, very nice, very professional of you. All right, um, <laughs> this brings us to the end of kind of the fun part of our show, and. Uh, now we'll uh, move on to talking some Toronto FC, which, you know, they, they have not been very fun to watch uh, through the first half of the season, obviously, um, at, uh, since the conclusion of their Champions League campaign. Um, last night's 4-3 loss to Minnesota United, that uh, brings us officially to the halfway point of the of the season, and the, the numbers aren't great. Four wins, three draws, ten losses. Uh, already double all of the losses from last season, and that brings us to only 15 points, which has them 10th of of 11 in the Eastern Conference uh, and DC United the only team behind them they have three games in hand um, you know that that Champions League run sure feels like a long time ago doesn't it Steve yes yes it <laughs> does uh, you know there, you've already given out a, a couple of stats I mean I got all kinds of things written down here if you want you want to compare last year to this year I mean, it's just it's about as painful as it gets. For example, this team, this Toronto FC team that we're looking at right now, people want to talk about, well, there's still time. They can come back. They can make the changes, all that. You know, this is a team that hasn't won back-to-back games yet at all this yeah. year. You know, and they've already lost back-to-back games four times. But on the flip side, I mean, again, you can tell yourself any story you want. Last year, they won back-to-back games eight times. That includes two six-game win streaks. And they only lost back-to-back once all year. So we've, we've seen the losses mount. We know the reasons why. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of those reasons why. But, I mean, the roster is not that diff- different from last year. Now, some of the changes, maybe we'll talk about those and why I think they've been problematic and that have sort of placed TFC in a difficult position. 
But the core is still largely the same. And this is a core, like we said, that went on two six-game win streaks last year. Uh, and this is, you know, came off the best season in the history of MLS uh, soccer. So do they do they need to, how much do they need to change to, to right the ship is probably the big question and probably the one we're going to want to talk about today, I imagine. Yeah, certainly. And uh, another season that people kind of bring up if, if you're talking about um, getting back into things is that Seattle Sounders uh, MLS Cup winning season where, you know, they were basically in Toronto FC territory through the first, um, you know, the first part of the season and then uh, completely switched it around. But um, the thing that made that happen, obviously, the catalyst for all that was bringing in Nico Ladero. Um, I, I guess you could argue and I, I've sort of made the comparison in the past that once Josie Altidore comes back, that could kind of be like your Lodero coming in but um, it, it does just seem like a different situation completely um, where this Toronto FC team they just um, you know they, they just seem to be so down on themselves right now well there's another big change that happened as well too right don't forget they sack Siggy Schmidt right, right. <laughs> so that, that's another big that's another big change as well so Lodero is only only part of that equation uh, you know that I think you had a, a, a massive shake-up that basically forced the players into, uh, you know, a, a different level of accountability. Now, I'm not saying Vanny out, but mm-hmm. I, there are a lot of people who are suggesting there needs to be some changes. And I think that, you know, getting rid of Mino and Ben Spencer is not is <laughs> not going to be enough to demonstrate that the the that there needs to be some changes inside the locker room. Uh, I do think they need to make some changes. I do think that some some. Uh, some very stern response from the front office would be beneficial at this point in time uh, because what they have, co- the collection that they have right now, isn't working, and I don't think injuries uh, are necessarily the you know the, the the thing to point to. Now you say Josie Altidore, they miss Josie. Absolutely, they miss Josie Altidore. I mean, if you just look at sort of goal production, 15 goals last year you're getting from Josie. Even this season, he only played three games, but he scored two goals. He only took 10 shots and had four on target. Mm. If we, you know, whereas. Javinko, for example, this season has played 13 games. It's taken 81 shots, you know, <laughs> that uh, you know, and it only has three goals, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, through 13 games, yes. So uh, you're missing Josie's pr- production, his 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 finish, but at the same time, you're not actually. Uh, that's not that's not the difference maker, I think, offensively in in what is hurting this team. I think there are a lot of other reasons uh, uh, that that are that are really going against them, um, and I think it's more than just goals conceded. I do think goal scores matter, and I think that there are other players to point the finger at other than just Josie being absent. Even then, too, like. Last year's Toronto FC team, kind of the hallmark was you could take any one player out of that team and um, they wouldn't necessarily miss a beat. So uh, seeing how much, you know, obviously these are big misses, but seeing how much a Drew Moore coming out and how much a Josie Altidore coming out has completely, you know, crippled these sides. And that's not the whole reason, but it's part of it. Um, You know, the deepest team in MLS hasn't or so-called deepest team in MLS last season uh, hasn't looked that way this year. Yeah, last year they got production from some other spots. So mm. let's just take a look at two of those in particular. Let's look at Ricketts and let's look at Morrow. So Morrow scores last night. But but going into last night, he had no goals in the season. You say, well, he's injured. He still played 300 minutes, right? So 300 minutes without a goal is a lot for a guy who scored eight goals last season. Mm-hmm. Eight, right? So you, that that's a big difference. You know, last year, uh, Ricketts scored seven goals. 
He played a thousand, a thousand minutes, scored seven goals, not to mention how many were called back for being offside, <laughs> right? In this season, he only has two goals, hmm. but he's only played 495 minutes. His minutes have been greatly reduced, and we haven't seen him get a lot of, a, a lot of playing time in the position where he's most effective. So of those 495 minutes, a lot of them have come from him having actually to start. And what we know about Tosain Ricketts, anybody who's followed the club for any amount of time, knows that he's at his most uh, effective spot when he comes in later in the game, and you're trying, and you can stretch the defense, and you can use his speed to exploit uh, more tired, uh, you know, uh, center backs and defenders. And so he really hasn't been put in that position to to allow him to push forward. That's 15 goals between Moro and Ricketts that you then that you're not getting that type of production right now. And that makes a massive difference to me. That's a bigger difference than the difference that we're talking about with Josie Altador being out. The other player for me who I think has been a huge disappointment that no one is talking about is Hassler. I mean, Hassler to me has been completely ineffective so far for this team, uh, both on the, he's supposed to be an offensive minded uh, midfielder slash wing, wing back. At least that's how he was brought into the team. He was brought into the team to, to, to in, 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 as a Beta Shore replacement almost, right? And then we saw him take Beta Shore's minutes when Steven was injured last season. And I think that he's the biggest miss from the club. We can talk about that in a few minutes if you want to. And last season, Hassler had nine starts, 10 games, 750 minutes, three goals and an assist. Now, two of them came in one game with his head, but, but whatever it may be, we saw some offensive flair. I always thought he wasn't very solid defensively, especially in comparison to Beta Shore. This season, you're not getting the defensive support from him in that in that wide position. And in addition to that, you're not getting the offensive support. Nine starts, 11 games, 711 minutes, no goals, only one assist. And in, in the Minnesota game last night, multiple balls dropped to Hassler in dangerous positions and no ability to finish. And so to me, I think that there's a player who's on a decent salary, taking up an international spot, uh, playing a lot of important minutes at a very important position and really not giving enough to the team. And I think that is really hurting this club right now. Speaking of players at Toronto FC, we're certainly expecting to bring in some secondary offense. Uh, you know, one of their biggest signings, their biggest signing of the offseason and uh, um, one of the most expensive players on the roster, Agar Akeche. Um, he wasn't even in the 18 last night against Minnesota. Um, I haven't seen any indica- indication that he's hurt. We don't fully know yet what his situation is, but um, even if he, you know, even if he is hurt or whatever, he certainly hasn't worked out in the way I was expecting to this season. Um, he just, you know, all the talent seems to be there. He's very good from set pieces. We saw a number of long shots earlier in the season that, um, you know, he he had the went off the crossbar or got saved and uh it seemed like he was going to bring something different to this Toronto FC team but it really hasn't panned out he um he's kind of played choppy minutes so far he, he doesn't seem to have uh gained the trust of of Greg Vanny and you know all of a sudden this just seems like a player that um you know it's it's hard to see a future with um at at this moment Absolutely, and he shouldn't have the trust of Greg Vanny. He should be nowhere near the field. He should be sent back on a plane to Portugal if we're going to be, you know, quite honest about his play. His play's been atrocious. It's been, you know, he has no goals and only one assist in 730 minutes with this club, and that's just not acceptable for the, for a player on that type of salary. And I mean, you can talk about, well, you know, Mavinga's first game was rough, but then look how he settled in. This is not that situation. <laughs> this is comparable to John Bostic when John Bostic came to Toronto, right? Oh, I man, mean, what a I, reference. I, I, <laughs> a guy with a with, with a massive amount of talent, huge amount of upside, clearly skilled, unable to adapt to the to, to the to the play here in MLS. So I don't know what the reasons are why he's not getting it done. But what I can tell you is, when we talk about moves that need to be made, this is the first player that should have been cut. 
And even if you eat the salary, it doesn't matter. He, it, I mean, it, it's 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 about sending a message that we, you know, if you're if you're the best team, if you're the best club in this league, and you're only going to accept that level of success going forward, when a player comes and they don't meet that level of success, it's time to say goodbye. And you got to be a little bit ruthless. And I think that he should go. You talk about shots. Only Javinko, and I I gave you the number for the ridiculous number of shots Javinko has taken. Mm -hmm. Only Javinko has taken more shots than than a catcher. Nobody else is even close. In fact, you can add up Vasquez and Osorio and Ricketts together, and it's still less <laughs> shots than a catcher. And 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 and. Very, if, 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 uh, if I, I'll pull the number up maybe uh, over the break, but if you look at the number that are actually on target, you know, it's it's astronomically low. So a, a guy who takes a lot of shots, and I think you, I think uh, you know over uh, over twenty, I think it was twenty six or twenty seven of them aren't even uh, aren't even on target. So just like just giving away possession, you know, and just wasting balls over and over and over again. I mean, it's just it's not there, and uh, it's time to move on. I think you might have found the uh, deficiency in my player player analysis, uh, you know, or player scouting, uh, you know, pool because I really liked John Bostock when he arrived at Toronto. See, those kind of flashy players are always going to attract my attention right away. But um, as you said, he didn't work out, and it doesn't seem right now like Edgar Akeche is working out either. Um, you know, if, if Toronto were potentially to move on from Edgar Akeche, um, and obviously they did just open up an international spot with uh, with Mariano Mino uh, being released, um, you know, is is there a t- is there a player you could see them bringing in that could potentially um, help them to turn it around right now, or is this you know is this a bigger issue um, at the moment? I think the question is what's going on upstairs. And I mean, and I mean, and I mean that. I mean, no, we don't talk a lot about Bezbachenko and about the plan for this club. And, you know, football genius, at least as the supporters like to chant. And certainly Tim has done a fantastic job since he's come here. And everything that he's touched has turned to gold. And I mean, part of the difficulty in comparing this season to last season is that everything everything went right last year. Everything went right. Every bounce went TFC's way. Every call went TFC's way. Every substitution Vanny made turned out to be gold. You know, I mean, they ended up they scored over twenty goals in the final fifteen minutes. How many times did they win games right from the from the the, the jaws of death? I mean, just everything seemed to go right. Every signing looked like another genius signing, and everything was perfect. And uh, you know, clearly this season we're starting to see a little bit of maybe of a return to uh, the mean or whatever. Right? <laughs> we're seeing a little bit more where not everything is going perfect and not everything's going right. And so what I, I say is, what's going on upstairs is is the question that I want that I would ask is. You know, what are they identifying as the key needs of this club? Because when we spoke with Bill Manning uh, in the offseason and when we spoke with Bezpachenko in the offseason and when we spoke with Greg Vanny in the offseason, they talked about the type of players that they were identifying to bring in to make them better for the Champions League. They talked about guys who had experience in the toughest leagues in the world. They talked about guys who had a chip on their shoulder. They talked about guys who were tough and who were solid defensively and who could make this team better. And then they went out and they brought in Oro Jr. and they went and they brought in Vanderweel and they brought in Akeche. Uh, and, I mean, and you can have your opinion on those players, but to me, those none of those players meet uh, what what was originally laid out as the criteria for the type of players that they were looking to bring in. You know, and I think that Jan Vila uh, was a player that that I asked Bill Manning about specifically, and I asked Bezbachenko about specifically. Someone that asking if they had targeted him. I know that him and Mavinga are extremely close friends, and that uh, Chris had spoken very highly uh, about Toronto and about. You know, him, you know, trying to lure him to, to, to MLS, and I know that they decided to, to take a pass on that. And to me, that's the type of player that had they made that signing, they would have won the Champions League. 
because then you don't have to play Michael Bradley at center back <laughs> in, in, in the most important game of your entire club or leagues, uh, you know, uh, history. Like, you know, uh, you, you, you have the ability to make, to make different choices. And I think that the choices that they've made as to what they've identified as their need and then how they've gone out to, to, to fill that has been, has been very poor this season. I think the decision to let Raheem go was it was it was, was a poor decision? I think the decision to let Betashore go was a poor decision, and I don't think that they properly replaced either one of those players. And I don't think Vanderweel or Oro Jr. has 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 has, has done the job either. So when I, when you say, well, who could you bring in to replace Akeche? I think the first question is, where do you where do you assess the largest need in this team? Because this team is turning into one. You know, they they, they want to keep going and signing midfield players. Is midfield the problem? I, I I don't think the midfield is the problem. I think that maybe the structure in which the midfield is set up might be probably be a problem. I think Hasler gets more minutes than 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 he's than he's deserving of. I think that Chapman doesn't get enough minutes based on his production and his play over the last two seasons. I think the desire to move Michael Bradley into the center back position has been really problematic for the team setup and structure. I think removing the 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 two midfield pairing of Delgado and Bradley as a two in front of the back line has really been uh, a part of the, the, the downfall for this team and why they've conceded so many more goals than last season. And I think that the the need to continue to highlight Jonathan Osorio as uh, as their top offensive option is really uh, killing the team's defensive ability to compete in matches. So I don't think that the problem is the bodies in the midfield. I think it's just more the where the minutes are being allocated in the midfield and what we what this team needs, which I think anybody who watches understands clear as day is they need a striker to play up top when Altador is not available because Javinko, if you don't want to play Javinko as the sole striker, which I think you could, and we'll talk about that if you want in a second, then you need to give him somebody other than Hamilton, Spencer, Ricketts to play with, and the team hasn't done that. And you need to find some centre-back depth. And I think what made this team great, moved them from a good team to a great team, wasn't the signing of international players. I think what made them great is they went out and they got Beta Short. They went out and they got Moro. Not in that order, obviously in the, in the opposite order, mm-hmm. right? But what they did, what they, they went out and they got Drew Moore. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they got guys who were pros, who knew how to play in this league, who understood the North American game, and who could do a job. And while they were doing a job, the superstars were allowed to be superstars. Shankly says, right? You know, you don't need 11 guys to play the piano. You need one guy to play the piano and 10 guys to move it. And what's happened, I think, over the last 18 months is that Bezbachenko and Manning and, and Vanny have gotten a little bit too uh, you know, too creative, too loose, too in love with their own ideas about what this team can do and, and how they want to play. And they've, they, they, they've, they haven't held on, uh, especially in the last several months, to the types of players that they need to move the piano. Even though I think that they know that and they identified that in the offseason was what they needed to do to beat the Mexican teams in the Champions League. They then went in a different direction and brought in Oro and Akeche and Vanderweel, none of whom meet that, uh, that description. It is kind of interesting how quickly they've they've gotten away from those MLS uh, you know those MLS core signings uh, in terms of you know that that was always a problem with Toronto FC was they didn't sign enough you know MLS proven veterans they they kind of like to go outside and it looks like they've continued to do that this off season 
Um, you know, there is one other competition uh, this month uh, that all of a sudden becomes incredibly important to Toronto FC. It was always going to be incredibly important considering how the Champions League final ended and uh, this team's kind of obsession with with kind of righting the wrongs and uh, getting back to that Champions League final next season. Um, That is the Voyager's Cup. Um, Is that kind of the last chance, do you think, Steve, to kind of salvage something from the season to get, um, you know, uh, kind of one positive note that that you know if even if they don't make the playoffs at least they're going to have a Champions League run next season an opportunity uh, to kind of fix the uh, the disappointment that happened this year in the in that final. I think that's one narrative. Right? I mean, I think you could you could definitely say that. Mm. I mean, you could, right now I feel like the fan base is divided into two groups. Group A right now is Danny out. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's starting back up again. And the idea here is you, <laughs> you sack the man, <laughs> yeah, you sack the manager because the job's not getting done, and the biggest clubs in the world don't accept failure. And so, if this was Bayern, if this was Chelsea, if this was Real Madrid, it doesn't matter what you did last season. The fact that you know you're you're about to sink an entire year means it's time for you to move on. And we've we you know we've seen this around the world with with, with other big clubs. And so that 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 narrative is there. And then the other narrative that we're getting now is the idea, well, you know what, this season may be gone, but there's been circumstance. There's the Champions League run and there was injuries and but you know, we can still, you know, we can still win the Canadian Championship and we can we can push for next year's Champions League. And so now you start to use this time to see what you got in other players and to make decisions going forward. But you know, you start to line yourself up to only win the cup the domestic cup and then make a champions league run. And then in that case you keep Vanny, you keep your staff together and you just you just build on and you don't want to I would like to see uh, somewhere in the middle of those two. Like, why why can't there be a, a, a different option? Why can't the different option be the, the option that was last year's? Right, last year's team went out to win every single game, mm-hmm. went out to get three points in every single game, and accepted nothing less than that. For whatever reason, this year's team, the the, the setup, the dressing room, whatever, you want to blame Vanny, you want to blame Bezbachenko, you want to blame injuries, you want to blame the players, blame where, put, place the blame wherever you want, but they're not playing with that same level of mentality. And I think that when a team is looking mentally soft, which this team looks right now, or fragile, I'm not saying they are that, but I'm saying that's how it appears because they keep you know, giving, conceding these early goals, right? They're, uh, they're 0-8-1 when they trail at the half. They're 0-9-1 <laughs> when the other team scores first. That means 10 of the 17 games they've conceded the first goal. Uh, you know, whereas Greg Vanny's teams always need to score first, right? Last year, last year even in, in their championship season, they were one, four, and three when they trailed at the half. They were one, four, and five when the other team scored first. But they were nineteen, one, and two when they scored first. This year, they're four, one, and two when they score first. They've always been a team that you know they they play different when they play with confidence. And they're a team right now that's not playing with confidence. They're conceding a lot of early goals, like we've talked about, right? Two early goals last night against Minnesota. That's the killer. Mm-hmm. That's ten goals in the first fifteen minutes of matches this season. <laughs> that's unbelievable. <laughs> They've only scored 11 in the first half mm. of games this season. In the 17 games they've played, they've only scored 11 first half goals. They've conceded 10 in the first 15 minutes. Uh, and last year, they only conceded six in the first 15 minutes of the yeah. entire all season. So, I mean, this is a team that that plays better with confidence and not playing with confidence. So why I get on this big rant? Because to say we're playing for the cup is to now just concede the rest of the season and just sort of give it away. And how can a team who, 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 who plays at such a fine line between with and without confidence, how can you ask them now to go out there and, and, and not push for victory and not play with that bravado? They need their bravado back. I mean, 
they they need to turn that around. And I think that that has to come from a variety of spaces. I think what I would do if I was in charge of this team is I would make some big moves. I mean, I would get rid of Irwin. I mean, last night I thought he was awful. I mean, five starts this year, one win, four losses, conceded 13 goals and not a single shutout. I mean, you just you can't get that. In comparison, last year I thought he was really good in that backup role. Six starts, you know, at two shutouts, only five goals allowed. Even though he was one, one, and three, he kept his team in all of those games. He's not keeping his team in games right now. Last night, of the four goals that were conceded, three of them are directly on him. No matter how much you hate Zavaleta, no matter how much you hate Hagland, no matter how much you want to tweet about Hagland and Zavaleta, <laughs> three of those goals are completely on Irwin, and the first goal uh, is. Or sorry, the, the second goal is completely on Jonathan Osorio, 100% on Jonathan Osorio, who just lets his man run directly in behind him and doesn't even track back on him in any way. Uh, so, I mean, you, I would move Irwin. I would get rid of a catch a, And I think even those two moves right there would be big signals to everybody in the dressing room that change is coming. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I, I would... I would put Chapman back into the to the to the starting lineup. I would you know even if it meant uh, a, a bit of a shape change, which I think would would benefit this team as well. I would I would sit Hasler. I would actually cut Hasler, but I mean if you want to keep him for whatever reason, you you know you you're welcome to. I would sit him. I would get rid of Hamilton. There's another player that I think can be can be moved out. I mean. It's hard for me, Mitch, to say all these things because, as you know, I know all these guys, mm. right? <laughs> like, like, like you do, right? Like, you yeah. know them all. Like, you see them all. You talk to them. You've been talking to them for years. Like, you know them as people, right? And so now, you know, you're, you're saying these these types of things. But if you ask me, like, how do I fix the club from a very pragmatic, non-emotional sense? What are the what are the changes that that need to be made? Those are the ones that need to be made. And I think if you're if if Bezbashenko is honest with himself, and if Vanny is honest with himself, and if they are aggressive, I mean, there's still time to to, 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 to turn this season around, you know, you got a home and home with Chicago coming up and, and, and then you have like a nice back half of the schedule where you can actually do some damage, but you got to win both those games against Chicago. You should have beat them already this season, which was one of the most atrocious referee games I've ever seen in my entire life at BMO early this season. I mean, you can win both those games against Chicago, put those six points on the board. Everything starts to turn around. We can't go back in time and put all those Javinko penalty kicks in the net. I mean, that changes the season, too. How many points have they lost on missed penalties, right? But what you can do is you can, you can change the narrative going forward. And if you're not going to fire the manager, which I, you know, which I, I don't think they will and I don't think they want to, uh, and, you know, and you, you're not getting Josie back tomorrow, uh, you know, how do you change this team? And I think, some, I think it's time for some drastic moves, more drastic, like I said, than Spencer and Mino. Steve Gennaro for change. That's a <laughs> that might be the uh, episode title for this one. Um, but I think we'll we'll wrap things up there. Uh, you know, certainly very interesting Toronto FC discussion. Uh, you know, as, as I'm sure you can tell, Steve, uh, one of the best numbers guys when it comes to Toronto FC. A ton of stats to digest there, um, and a ton of great opinions as well um, about where this team is going uh, very interesting next month a ton of games coming up for toronto fc so um definitely going to have to have you on again steve uh thanks for coming on though this time anytime Mitchell. thanks for having me 
And uh, listeners, if you're looking for a place to watch Saturday's set of quarterfinals, as well as the World Cup final itself, check out the Rec Room. Uh, it's a stone's throw from the Rogers Center, and you can watch the game on the theater-sized big screens. Uh, Footy Talks will be hosting a halftime panel of the England-Sweden match and a pregame panel for Russia-Croatia. Uh, I'll be there alongside Joshua Cloak of The Athletic, Laura Armstrong of The Toronto Star, and Oliver Platt of The TFC Report. Um, all these events are completely free and uh, you can check them out on our footy talks live social media and i hope to see all of you there Um, until then have a great week everybody